On this season of The Youth Element, we've explored the life arc of our millennial counterparts in East Asia. We've left high school. Getting an undergraduate degree is like a must for everyone. So, like every parents and every relatives you have will tell you, you, you gotta go to college. Finished our military service. Me and all soldiers are really prepared to go to、uh, war at the moment. It's not a matter of how you actually lived before the military service. Now you are in the hierarchy. We've even managed to topple political leaders. Especially the youth kind of went out on their own will. I think it became a very cool thing in Korea, especially about the youth population, to kind of partake in this protest. And we're very good at coming together and working for social change. I think it's in our DNA, actually. And even address those times of economic uncertainty. A lot of the youth thought that this whole society matter that. They're not getting jobs. It was all their fault. After knowing that these corporations were purposely doing this, they were furious about it and stepped out in a way. But where do we go next, moving forward? Stay tuned as we glance into the future. Hi, I'm Justin, and I'm Linda, and you're listening to the, the Youth, Youth Element. Element. Podcast series on East Asia's millennials. Over the course of five weeks, we traveled to five cities in East Asia: Shanghai, Taipei, Hong Kong, Tokyo, and Seoul. To listen to the voices of millennials and learn more about contemporary East Asia through their views and the stories of their own lives. Stay with us on the Youth Element. Well, we're finally here. Welcome to the season finale of the Youth Element. It's kind of hard to believe, right? I know, right? Through several weeks of adventure and exploration into the lives of our counterparts in five East Asian cities, we attempted to trace through that arc of life, from those precious high school memories to the grittier experiences in the military. From seizing those fiery moments of outright political activism to relishing in the smaller, more humble victories in our everyday lives. Yes. However, we try to navigate our millennial frustrations of intense academic competition, endless comparison, and uncertain economic situations. We hope that this journey has provided our listeners with a little window into the political, economic, cultural, and even geopolitical realities going on in East Asia from a different perspective. All through this complicated journey towards, well, becoming an adult, to fully take up the mantle as the next generation of leaders, inspiring scholars, innovative entrepreneurs, and that nurturing and caring neighbor. So after several episodes, we've left high school, we've completed the military service, and in some cases, we've even managed to topple political leaders. We are at the cusp of adulthood, but what does that mean? What becomes of us now? Finding a job, working our ways up the corporate ladder, finally settling down in the city, starting our own families? Oh my God, this is so overwhelming! All right, deep breaths, everyone. The struggle is real, but we'll keep calm and carry on. Carry on to where, though? Where do youth go from here? Or actually, where do we go from here? And I mean here, as in Vancouver. Where do we, the co-hosts of the Youth Element, go from here? This is so bittersweet. I can't believe this is our last episode. No, 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 no! I can't believe this is our last episode. I wish we.
All right, all right, we gotta get it together. No time for emotions right now. <clears throat> right, right. We have a lot to cover. Let's get right into it then. Yes, in this final episode, allow us to break down for you all one last time those concerns we all have about our less than certain futures and whatever adulting really means, whether it's in the context of Shanghai, Taipei, Hong Kong, Tokyo, or Seoul. We started this series with the whole idea of stress and competition. What it's like to be constantly compared to others by your family. Constantly trying to outscore your peers on those daunting exams. And constantly attending endless classes and prep courses to one up the kid next to you. And now we're also ending the series on stress and competition, beginning by revisiting a phrase we heard frequently in Hong Kong, and one that we briefly introduced back in episode one Winning begins at the starting line. I think this term, Yan Joy Hei Pao Sin, is actually like、um, simulating life is like a race. And it's like you already have an advantage before the race starts. And it's sometimes in some contexts they're saying that some people are born with a better environment, like、um, their family has a higher income. So they will be able to attend a better school. They can afford tutors, so they get better results in public exams. And then they get into a better university. They get to maybe have a master's degree, a PhD, and then they get a better job. And it's like if you are born richer than others, then you have a better future. And for those who are in poverty, it's a very difficult situation for them to have a better life because a lot of predisposed. Benefits are not there for them compared to others. And yeah, there a lot of people use this to demonstrate the inequality in society. So they, they really want to urge the government or maybe authorities to help those who are not having this predisposed benefit. You just heard Megan, a college student in Hong Kong. Megan is describing the phrase Yang Jai Hei Pao Xin. Or winning begins at the starting line. And she speaks about how life is like a race, how your success is heavily influenced by the amount of resources and training you have at your disposal, even before the race. And in this case, your life begins. Yeah, in most of our cases, parents invest a lot into their children and at a young age to ensure that they can get ahead in the rat race of life. And this necessarily entails a lot of prep classes, which means meeting and exceeding a lot of so called standards. So, kids, teens, and young adults will continuously be subjected to a lot of standardized exams, prep classes, and even prep classes for other prep classes. But these standards and notions of fixed practices take on some interesting contextual particularities across our cases. Whether it's in very rigid and prescribed methods of job hunting, or, as we shall discuss a bit later, even if it means reaching a certain physical or aesthetic standard to increase your level of desirability in the eyes of the most sought after conglomerates. So, from what I know, aside from the Canadian civil service and perhaps that big recruiting period for commerce students, I think many of us look for jobs kind of on our own time, and there isn't necessarily a huge, like, nationwide designated hiring cycle, which, as we've gathered from many of our interviews, seemed to be the case in Japan. One interesting way the Japanese job market was described to us was through our friend Satoshi, who used the term Galapagos system to describe the unique environment in which job hunting works in Japan. Basically, the analogy used in this comparison draws on the ecosystem of the Galapagos, where unique plants and animals live that can be found nowhere else in the world. So, like the Galapagos, 
Japan's job hunting system operates in a very unique way. Our friend Kazuto, who works in Tokyo, explains how exactly the Japanese job hunting process works. So, job hunting process for new graduates, it's really unique, as, as I said. So, there's like a fixed period when, uh, when all companies have seminars and invite all students to the, so those seminars and the students attend those seminars and trying to find out what they want to do. And after the period, they start to apply jobs. Uh, and there's like a huge uh, economic organization called Nikke Nike. Oh my god, I forgot that. So, but there's a huge organization here, and all like company, Japanese company belong there. That organization decides when it starts. So, so the company that like a venture or startup companies which doesn't belong to the, that organization can start anytime. But all since almost every uh, company belongs to the huge economic organization, and the organization decides when the job hunting starts. So it's like controlled, it's fixed. And usually from third year, we start job hunting. But it's really controversial because that affects the student life a lot. We don't have time to study, you know, we, well, because we're doing job hunting, so. And after graduation, I don't, I don't know. It's like, there's like a normal path for everyone. And if you, once you get out of the path, it's really hard to get back. The process to finding a job operates on a strict timeline in Japan, and it is mandatory to attend a seminar which talks about the company and the types of jobs that are available. Without attending one of these sessions, it's nearly impossible for a company to consider you. So we did a little background research on this, and the phenomenon is called shukatsu, which is short for the longer term that translates to finding employment activities. If you want to learn more about the business cycle, you can check out a link we have on our website at www.asiapacific.ca slash podcast. Or you can tweet us at Youth Element to ask us any questions. Interestingly, it's this one group, the Japan Business Federation, who controls the dates of the screening periods. In most situations, the recruitment cycle can begin as early as March, when students attend information sessions. June and July mark the period when most students submit applications, and August is usually the busiest month for interviews. So because of the way the system operates, if you decide to travel abroad or go on exchange somewhere else, you might miss your chance to apply to any of these jobs, leaving you out of the job market until the next year when the cycle begins again. And I can imagine it can get quite tricky navigating all of these rigid timelines, especially while you're still in school and trying to balance out all your other obligations. Kazuto and Maya, another friend currently working in Tokyo, discuss this more in detail, outlining the limitations of the current system and the lack of freedom that students have when they are looking for jobs. I don't. I didn't really like Japanese uh, job hunting system for new graduates because you know it's like not a lot of mobility, freedom. For my year, that was December first. From December first company starts seminar, having a seminar and stuff and from April 1st they start, uh, start having an interview and stuff so there's only like four period, four months or something until I think about where to apply. If I miss that period it's really hard to find a job right out of college so yeah it leaves 
less freedom for Japanese students to find their job. So I didn't like it very much. I think it's、um, very stressful for、um, all young people or all students. Maybe、um, we have to get more freedom to get a job. I applied like 50 companies, maybe, and then,、um, it was so stressful because、um, other people got job and then I couldn't get job. Like maybe till July, and then it's so late、um, in here. And as Kasto said, like、um, my company located me in Tokyo, and I wanted to work in Osaka, but yeah, I I like working in Tokyo because、uh, my friends are here. But actually, I wanted to、um, work in Osaka, but I had no choice. What can be extremely tough in these situations, as Maya explained, is the amount of companies that an individual may have to apply to before even getting a job. And even in these successful situations, relocation to larger cities is also a possibility, which, looking at Japan more broadly, also contributes to the outflow of people from. And depletion of smaller cities and rural places across Japan. The situation is sort of similar in terms of strict and fixed hiring cycles and prep schools in South Korea as well, but of course with some different local characteristics. Here's Sarah from Seoul on that. I mean, along with that, we have these designated like prep schools, like announcer prep school, stewardess, like flight attendant prep schools, and all these different occupations have a different set of it, and it's astonishing. It almost feels like we have this unilateral like one standard we have to meet up, and then everyone just want to go there. I think from Sarah's description, we can see how the idea of standardization stretches far beyond just a written test or application. There seems to be a desired standard for pretty much every occupation, and accordingly, a course you can take to attain that standard. Sarah continues to elaborate on this point a bit more, and our friend Julie chimed in as well, really fleshing out the idea of how in Seoul there's a huge market for prep schools that even provides courses that teach you what the ideal or preferable look is for certain professions. In Korean term, we use indesang, which means. An individual, a preferable individual that a company wants, and that differs for each major corporation. For example, Hyundai wants a more conservative, a more manual person, while let's say LG wants a little bit of more creative but still conservative. It really differs, and because people want information, they go to prep schools, and then they、um, they kind of select. Um, the corporations that they want to go to, they match themselves. They match their resumes. They sometimes write false information into that because they need to match their criteria. They write false experiences.、Um, they write false, I don't know,、um, results, academic results. So、um, they match themselves to the corporation because job finding is so hard right now. We know that's wrong. I mean, obviously, the people who get plastic surgery because they want to look more amicable to the interviewer wouldn't really feel they look. I mean, they they look bad, right? But that's what they want. I mean, they want friendlier. They want like approachable because they they really don't like the person or applicant who are too yeah stand out, questionable, or like stand up. Like to the other superior supervisors, I think it also like depends on our corporate cultures. With jobs hard to come by and a job in a prestigious or elite company even more difficult, I know it sounds extreme, 
but I guess even things like your look can sometimes make or break your career. And I guess hearing from them, we can see how the idea of standards stretch far beyond a written test or application. In extreme cases, it can even mean attaining a certain prescribed or designated aesthetic standard. And as Sarah highlighted earlier, the idea of uniformity and conformity makes it tough for youth to be themselves when they are told by some of the most powerful corporations that a certain image and demeanor is more preferable. I think it's safe to say that across society, and from familial pressures as well, there is still a lot of prestige attached to the notion of aspiring towards a big conglomerate. Or if any of you recall back in episode 1, to realize your so-called chable romance. Jenny and Andy spoke a bit about this aspiration. Or maybe more apt, this expectation. When coupled by the intense level of competition in all aspects of life, as well as the uncertain economic times, this plays out not only in the lives of youth, but also in South Korea's economy and job market. I guess the main reason the job hunting system so procedure is so strict in Korea is because everyone wants people to go to top schools and top companies, the, the, how they are more aware of other, how other people view them. So that's why everyone's um, just going for the big conglomerates, even if they don't know what to do with their life. So I guess that's why everyone's trying to get the same profiles. And there are like, um, I don't know, they say, they say eight mandatory stuff you need. for. It's not mandatory, mandatory, but it's mandatory because everyone else has them. So they have those. And they, there are actually private academies who give you consultations about how to apply for jobs. And there are private study groups for those um, company exams and how you peer editing like each other's um, resumes and self-introduction essays. So I've gone through this procedure as not, not as strict as like other people would have done after I graduated college. But now I think it will be not as strict because now I'm going for, not going for top conglomerates, but for like research institutions. But when I was going through that, it was really, really tough. It was really competitive. And it's, I don't think it's worth it, though, because once you go into a company, they give you a lot of money. But um, it's also true that you don't get a lot of personal life. And there is a hierarchy within the company that's really strict. So I, I'm like questioning whether that's worth it. I guess in my university, there's a lot of people who want to become public officials. Um, like, uh, I would say around 70% of the entire school, school population wants to, be, wants to go to a, a job where they have stability. Like, if you go to the library, they all study for, like, you know, diploma, to, be, to, become, to become a diplomat or to become a public official. So, from, from this perspective, I can kind of see that even if they're like the top students, right? They they are they have really good grades and everything. They're still they're not they don't want to risk any challenges. I guess around five or six year, years ago, they 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 used to like create their own jobs or they used to do ventures. But now, nowadays, like this, all of this is gone. Like I I can hardly see anyone who's who is into like creating new jobs or creating their own company. But rather, they just go for like a very safe. Uh, positions like you know um and there has been a controversy where um a graduate uh, wanted to go into like a really low level um public official position which is like a level nine we have from level one to level nine and level nine is like the most uh, low the bottom of the public official to become a public official like 
Um, so it's getting, getting jobs are very tough now, and like it's I know people and the students are very you know stressed about getting jobs in in Korea. So they're trying to look for very stable jobs, and they're not going abroad. They're trying to stay in Korea, just so that they're not looking for any foreign companies or etc. So it's yeah, it's very. Um, I think it's all related to like the economic situation right now in Korea as well. Here, Andy sort of mentions how the economic climate in South Korea has made many people more risk adverse and more prone to taking more conventional paths and so-called safe jobs. And like Jenny said, many are just trying to find good jobs in big conglomerates because that just seems like the supposed right path, the one that is considered successful at the society-wide standard. And it's probably been a path that parents have in mind and that their peers are also striving towards and that the education system ultimately prepares them for. Let's take a step back for a second and revisit that phrase, winning begins at the starting line. You know, while we were having that conversation with Megan in Hong Kong, another one of our interviewees chimed in and said, If you don't know where the end goal is, then what's the point of starting the race early? Dear Lord, let's not summon the demons of my existential crisis. But indeed, if parental and even societal expectations have tended to plunk a child into a very predetermined path even before preschool, is there a chance for one to truly discover and forge their own path ahead? for one to explore their other passions and aspirations. And I think us Canadians who are currently entering or preparing to enter the Canadian job market can relate to some of these challenges. It's again, tying this discussion back to some previous episodes, that idea that we're becoming increasingly educated while our prospects seem to become increasingly narrow, so that we're constantly pitted against someone else, or just operating in a system that seems to fight back against our efforts all the while trying to really carve out a place for ourselves in this world in a way that is meaningful. Right, and as we know, sometimes the problem isn't even finding a job. The challenge is in finding a job or a career that you're satisfied with, one that you can seriously and totally say that you're passionate about, but can also pay the bills at the same time. Does that exist? Well, if it does, someone point me in that direction, please. I would if I could. But what I can do is direct our attention to Brian the editor of New Blue magazine from Taipei, who spoke to us more about the situation, and more specifically about the lack of innovation in the job market and a lot of job dissatisfaction over in Taipei. It's not as difficult finding jobs. You know, I know, I, I know people have just been forever finding jobs. Um, I think also just a lot of office work is kind of dissatisfying, and there's no kind of uh, room for you know, promotion. I think people don't really have those kind of opportunities. And also, it's just very difficult to survive with the, the, the rising real estate prices. Like, nobody's going to own a house or anything like that. And you see the same situation with, I think, young people across the world. Another thing people like to talk about is that, you know, there are no new businesses being started because, you know, people keep starting coffee shops. And that's why, like, in Taiwan, there's so many coffee shops. Because, you know, although they go out of business all the time, like, people are afraid to start new businesses, like startups, because, you know, a coffee shop is kind of a, a safe investment. It's not a new, radical new idea or anything like that. There's a lot of attempts to reinvigorate or to invigorate the startup sector, you know, the tech sector, but I'm not sure how it's working out. Yeah, there's too much competition from China, and, you know, they have much more resources. Finding a job may not be that difficult of a task in and of itself, but if you want a job that pays well, has good benefits, and also gives you a little bit of satisfaction with yourself, you know, not make you want to pull your hair out every day, then maybe that isn't so easy. James, another friend who has been working in Taiwan for a few years now, seemed to echo these views, putting a greater emphasis on wage equality for young workers. Well, finding a job is alright, but uh, finding a good job is kind of hard. 
yeah, it's hard, but the house price is getting higher and higher, and we start to realize that even if we get a above average job, it would be a dream for us to have the house. Just like people in Hong Kong, yeah, you, you see a lot of protests going on about higher house price. I like how James compared the situation for youth in Taiwan with their counterparts in Hong Kong, echoing again that idea that we're all kind of dealing with the same millennial struggles, which I think brings us closer as a global community. Misery loves company, right? Fortunately, or unfortunately, I think you're right. I mean, I've lived in Vancouver, where we're sort of infamously known for being a very expensive city, and I've also lived in Oxford for a while, which, to many surprise, is actually more expensive of a city to live in than even London if we're talking about expenses relative to average salary. So I can definitely relate to James, Brian, and all the others in these conversations, even if I've never personally lived their experiences. Also. Just like our discussion with James, whenever the topic of careers and jobs came up, it was almost always linked to other worries about the economy, which almost always wound the conversation back to stress and the housing market. And housing is definitely a huge concern for youth in Shanghai as well, which is one of China's most vibrant and cosmopolitan cities, but also one of the most expensive to live in. Indeed. So let's take a quick break, and afterwards we'll return with part two of our discussion. Adulting, parenting, and retiring. While we were in Shanghai, we got to speak with Wilson, a local Shanghainese who now works in the heart of the financial sector. I'd say that Wilson has definitely worked his way to come up on top in this leg of the race. But speaking to him, he explains how this wasn't an easy feat for him, and making it in Shanghai, unfortunately, is still a distant dream for many of his peers. Because I am a local, this is my city. But、uh, I I know that for a lot of people who are not from Shanghai but want to work in Shanghai, like from other small cities, they have a lot of pressure because they they are trying to afford an apartment, and that costs a lot, and their salary is not high, and、uh, some of them are not graduated from Shanghai. So most of the companies want someone who is actually from Shanghai or at least graduated from Shanghai. So if you're not like both of them or either of them, like you, you it's, it's really hard for you to find a job. So as we sort of mentioned in our other episodes, in China, your status of household registration or hukou plays a huge role in determining many things in your life, including how hireable you seem in the eyes of prospective employers. Indeed, it's like if I, as a Canadian, wanted to apply for a job in the U.S., I have all the qualifications. But ultimately, it's up to the American firm to decide whether or not it's willing to sponsor me for a visa. If there's an American that has equal qualifications as me, then I'd probably lose out to them. So I'd say this is a comparable case to someone who isn't born and raised in Shanghai but wants to work there. And that's on top of the reality of Shanghai just being, again, an incredibly expensive city to live in. As Wilson goes on to explain in the following quote, some of his friends struggle to make ends meet, and many have simply given up on having a rich social life. Cause, well, man, going out is expensive.、Uh, I have friends who are not actually from Shanghai, and they are not from a very rich family, and their family can't like sponsor them for the accommodation or something. So, like, their salary is usually like six thousand Chinese yuan. So like half of them, they need to spend it on housing, and they only have three thousand to like to eat, to buy clothes, to social, other things, to do other things. That's a lot of pressure.、Mm-hmm. 
Some of them don't social anymore. Because <laughs> if you go out for a drink, it's like at least five. 50, 50 yuan, right? So two drinks is a hundred. And uh, if you want to hang out with friends, go to a karaoke or something, amusement park, it costs a lot. So if you don't have that much money, you can do all the things. All the things you can do is like, just stay at home, play computer games, like watching videos. And I think there are a lot of people who are actually doing this. So one thing I found kind of interesting while talking to Wilson and some other friends from China is that all the conversations about housing seem to mean actually buying and owning your own property as opposed to renting. Owning property is an ultimate goal that youth strive towards. This is, of course, something that many want to do here as well, too. But I think the drive to do this in the context of China is much more expected at a societal level. Why? Well, because buying a property is basically like a prerequisite for marriage. Or at least, it's socially and culturally expected for you to own a house before considering marriage. Well, about housing, I think. For, for people that are around 24 and above, then you get married and they need a house or an apartment at least. And the housing price in Shanghai is quite high, like compared to our salary. If you want to buy an apartment in the city center, uh, after graduation, it's it's kind of impossible if your parents don't sponsor you, and although like the the economic situation becomes better, but uh, most of those parents are not rich enough to afford such an apartment, because uh, the housing prices like place here is like five million Chinese yuan, like one million Canadian dollar something. Yeah, so it's quite high, and uh, you need to work. As for me, I need to work. 500 months to buy it and after 500 months housing price is a lot higher so yes uh, well as for the 80s because the housing price was not that high at that time when they want to get married so they can afford it but for the 90s um, the housing price is too high so some of them just like give up buy, buying the house they just want to rent one but according, but according to the Chinese tradition, like renting a house is not too good. Like if you want to get married, you'd better have a house by yourself. So it's a lot of pressure. I guess the point here is that in the context of China, there's an added source of pressure on young adults to one, get married, but with that, two, own a home. And as we've discussed with the tough economic times, this isn't an easy feat, especially not in mega cities like Shanghai. My friends, some of some of my friends are getting married, so they have a lot of pressure on that. Some of them has to like move to the suburban area, like to live in a small apartment, so that they can get married. <laughs> if I can afford an apartment in the city center, that's like something I have to have before marriage. Then I don't want to get married anymore. Yikes! So first comes love, then comes marriage. Oh wait, no. First comes love, then comes mortgage, then comes... Concerns over pensions? Oh, so we just skip over the baby part now? I think this is becoming a growing trend, actually. And that's kind of witnessed at the macro level in many of our cases, too, as we've seen through the demographic growth patterns of aging and declining populations. Which is interesting to think about, right? Because when thinking ahead into the future, we asked our participants to discuss some of the major issues they think will be critical to the millennials of their respective societies. And while we did, of course, hear a lot of the same common themes, like jobs or housing prices, in Japan, the issue of the aging and decreasing population came up a lot. 
And it's one thing to hear about this in the news or through surfing the web, but it's another to actually live through and witness this social phenomenon. As one of our interviewees explained to us, when she was growing up, she remembered how there were three kindergarten classes of 30 students each in her elementary school. But now, there's only one. She's about to graduate university now, so it's interesting to see how in the span of some 20 years, you can really feel and witness this population decline. In other words, it's not just an abstract statistic you read about. Indeed, this is an issue that we've probably read a lot about in the news headlines here. But in speaking to our friends in Tokyo, we realize just how much the demographic situation in the country is impacting the concerns and worries of our millennial counterparts today. In this sense, youth's day-to-day concerns offer a great window into each community and definitely dive deeper into a web of complicated issues like technological advancement, demography, or even national identity. Let's hear from Miho, a student in Tokyo, for more on what she thought to be her top concerns looking forward as a millennial living and growing up in Japan. Most of my days we talk about our future, what kind of industry we will grow up in the future in Japan or the, the companies, the project is interesting. For me, uh, how I will manage the, my life in, when I became elderly people because the system of yes, old care the amount of old care is going to be decreased so I have to manage myself by, by myself not rely on government on the government so um, I always talk with the girl um, who lives in Canada there are so many uh, cares for elderly people. I love how Miho gives an indirect shout out to Canada and her welfare system. But yeah, from her perspective, old age care is a source of concern for her generation, and she's really thinking of planning ahead, far ahead. Japan's old age care is probably one of the most developed in the world right now. But as Miho sort of mentions, it's today's youth that are paying a significant amount into the system through taxes. But if the population continues to decline, Miho and her peers fear that the similar social benefits and guarantees that their grandparents are currently enjoying simply might not be available to them when they start becoming silver foxes and foxettes themselves. So while today's youth are paying their share to support the current welfare system, they might never get to be the beneficiaries when they themselves become dependent. Our friend Kazuto from earlier mentioned another concern when facing the future that's related to old age and demography, as well as the future of automation, and even Japan's position in the world overall. One is job security. Even though Japan is really you know, rich, there are new technologies. So it's, it is said that half of existing jobs will be gone you know, because of the new technologies. So I'm not sure I'm, I can have the same job in like 30 years from now, right? The other one is social, social welfare, social security. Since there's so many old people and less less young people, we have to pay a lot for their you know social insurance and healthcare and stuff. But we don't get anything. We have to pay for the older people, but less young people. I think there's no like bright future for Japan because there are less people, less population. The two main takeaway points here are 
One, with the uncertainty of the future of technology, there becomes a question as to whether some of these traditional jobs may be replaced by other forms of technology that will decrease the need for human labor. And two, in the context of Japan, things like social insurance and healthcare may not be available to millennials when they become older if there isn't a stable population base paying into these services. In Canada, as another country that is also seeing an aging population, we as Canadian millennials can probably relate on some levels to these concerns, although we may question ourselves whether or not our reliance on skilled migration to Canada is a sustainable pathway for the future. But as another one of our interviewees, Satoshi, mentioned, when we asked him what's his biggest concern moving forward, he said that it's how to maintain his current standard of living. And he ties this personal question to some pretty big macro level realities as well. Yeah, according to Satoshi, if Japan's youth want to maintain their current lifestyle and standards of living, then it's important for Japan's economy to be healthy and thriving. Yet, in the context of the growing of neighboring countries such as China and South Korea, he feels that Japan may be in for an uphill battle, which, by extension, ties in a certain degree of pessimism towards his own future as well. And in in addition, in my,、uh, my concern is that to maintain the current Uh, the debates of the lifestyles, because unfortunately, it seems so difficult to maintain current Japanese economic situations. The new emergence economies like China or Korea is catching up to Japanese economies, especially、uh, in manufacturing sectors. And yes, our generation is not so. Uh, optimistic is with、uh, my parents' generations, which has enjoyed like the period of Japan number Japan as number one or so on. Our generation is more pessimistic. For Satoshi, he sees his lifestyle as inextricable from the realities of his economy, and in his case, if there's no desire for Japan to innovate or catch up, then you may fall behind to other fast-growing economies like China and South Korea. And interestingly, like the Japan case, our friends Julie and Lucy in Seoul echoed a similar sentiment about social security, and just that idea of no longer looking inwards towards each society for the answers to some of the millennial concerns. It's general frustration. One of the reason why people want to get out. I mean, hell, Joseon. Like those phrases, there for a reason. I mean, they say like we have to get out of it. I don't know whether they meant like specifically structures of it or literally the country because they don't see the hope inside. Not really clear, but still, it's a massive concern. Like, I think it's all intertwined. Like, no money, like no job, no money, no money in house and family and individual quality of life. And, yes, and and also with our country situation, having less population with less stable like national. A pension system. We have a continuous report that pension system will not be sustained when, like, in twenty twenty years or ten years, already, and it means like we work hard, we pay tax, and it is highly probable you don't get any. So it's kind of scary situation for all of us. It's such a unstable world. Like the youth also feel it. I think it's more holistic how instability is come really deep in your mind. Like. Job, like if you look into job, but also how you form your life. As you already probably know, our country has one of the lowest fertility rate. Like total fertility rate is extremely low, 
And one of the reason is with job. I mean, you don't have job, no money, no settlement. I mean, no kids. But then, if you have kids, education, payment, house, all those thing comes in. So you don't get kids, you don't get married, because you're afraid that your life is not going to be stable. Your life is going to be much worse if you get married and stuff. So they are giving up all their, like. Social communities or social like actions or parents and families that you can achieve from individual to the next level. So, like Julie mentioned, a lot of youth in South Korea have realized that they want a way to exit the current system, whether that is through local reforms and changes by government or by the physical emigration from the country. It looks like millennials are looking for alternative options to reduce the hardships they are facing. Right. I mean, with no job and no money. There's definitely no easy way to support yourself, and without a stable base to support social security funds, where does that leave the situation in, say, ten to twenty years? So, is there any consensus about all of this? Perhaps not. But Brian in Taipei did find a way for us to relate these ideas together and to better relate how we as Canadians can attempt to understand some of the issues we described here today. Is there a sense of hopelessness? I'm not totally sure. Or is there a sense of hope? I'm not totally sure. I just think it's somewhere in between. But you know, in general, young people they do have worries about the future, regardless. Because you know, either way, you know, Taiwan has uh, you know not a very high income for young people, and you know, economic conditions are not very good, and you know, so these these questions that are kind of really big, I think maybe get displaced. So I think people don't know that there's neither hope nor hopelessness. I guess you know, I think young people are are similar across the world. I think you know, the world, everyone, young, all young people in general are experiencing many of the same difficulties. Uh, just in Taiwan is complicated by you know the extra layer of different you know of the national question of you know the fact that Taiwan is caught between so many different countries you know so many power players, and so I think you know I think Canada can be sympathetic to that. I think Canadians can be sympathetic to that because you know there's a very large neighbor to the south of uh, Canada. <laughs> um, but I, I I think that you know just to keep in mind that you know Taiwanese people are like young people across the world in Canada and seeking direction about the future. Like Brian says, we should all keep in mind how much of all of us are actually similar, and that is often an extra layer of historical or political issues that really makes each of these situations different. In the case of Taiwan, the factor is this question of national identity, especially so when there's a much bigger neighbor next door, like with Canada and the U.S., or perhaps even New Zealand vis-a-vis Australia. At the end of the day, Satoshi, Brian, Miho, Kazuto, Wilson, Maya, and all the others have re-emphasized the point we've been trying to make throughout the series: that one, you can learn so much about another society through the everyday concerns and realities of our counterparts, and two, we should continue to fold in the voices of youth in discussion of politics, economics, geopolitics, international relations, and so on. And the potential for us to collaborate and share is so easy these days. So rather than think about all of our struggles in isolation, let's think about how we can share through this global community. Life as we know continues, and as millennials, we have no choice but to face the future face forward. And that if one thing is certain, we aren't alone. From all the stories we listen to, we know that we are definitely connected in this increasingly globalized world. So now, speaking of looking ahead and all this talk about the future, where does the youth element go from here? And more specifically, where do we, Justin and Linda, go from here as we too try to, you know, figure out our own stuff? 
Well, for me, I'm, you know, for better or for worse, headed back to school, actually. I'm going to kiss the last few years of my youth goodbye and kiss Vancouver goodbye because I'm going to be taking on a doctorate degree in Oxford. And specifically, I'm looking at rural development in contemporary China. So, in other words, it's back to the books and libraries for me. As for me, I'll still be here with the Asia-Pacific Foundation of Canada, where I'll continue to contribute to the Foundation's education and curriculum initiatives. So over the next year, keep a lookout for any youth initiatives the Foundation may be planning. If there's one thing that we hope to show everyone through this mini-series, it's that in this globalized, digitalized, and just super crazy world, we're all going through similar experiences of competing for good grades, keeping a watchful eye over our politicians, or even just looking for good and stable jobs for the future. But at the same time, we acknowledge that each society has its own unique context in which these situations are occurring and that it's so important for us to exchange in these cross-cultural dialogues so that we can learn from one another. And if the youth element had any goal, it was to connect all of these points to say that you don't have to go through any of these struggles alone. So if there's one final thanks, we just wanted to say thank you to you, the listeners, from those tuning in just now to those who have stuck through and listened to us from our young beginnings until the end. But if anything... Your comments and feedback week after week have shown us that this is not the end, but only the beginning of what we will do as future citizens of the world. So signing off for the last time, I'm Justin Kwan. And I'm Linda Chan. And thank you for listening to The The Youth Youth Element. This podcast was supported by the Asia-Pacific Foundation of Canada's Postgraduate Research Fellowship Program. Songs featured in this episode include Corporate Success, and Corporate Innovative by Scott Holmes. Camille Saint-Saëns' Danse Macabre, performed by Kevin McLeod. And finally, one last time, special thanks to Megan, Wilson, Brian, James, Sarah, Julie, Andy, Gina, Kazuto, Maya, Miho, Satoshi, and the rest of our friends and participants who shared their insight and took the time to be interviewed. Note, some of the names of participants have been changed for privacy reasons. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily represent the views of the Asia-Pacific Foundation of Canada.